Mr. General Ryan, who has now joined us. Welcome. Good morning to Australia. It's good to be with you. Likewise, we're absolutely privileged and uh, thank you very much for taking the time right now in the momentous days after Kherson and after the upheaval and the kerfuffle in Poland. Um, lots and lots of things happening. You're currently on Javan 4, as I understand. On what, sorry? You're currently on Javan 4, if I'm not compl uh, completely mistaken. You said you were typically at the Rebel Alliance Command Center, right? Oh, <laughs> yes, sorry, you lost me there for a moment. Uh, yes, let's let's go with that. I'm on Yavin 4. <laughs> All righty. Um, if you don't mind, let's maybe start briefly with the uh, recap of uh, that exceptional event in Kherson, both how um, Ukraine shaped and drove it and uh, what the Russian armed forces conducted. Could you maybe summarize? Uh, you've given many, many notices out and tweeted about it and discussed it, but could you summarize how you see it with a few days of distance? Yeah, I think this was um, a pretty significant Ukrainian victory. Um, for several months, the Ukrainians really undertook a, a fairly uh, creative series of shaping operations. Uh, particularly when it comes to long-range strike uh, on logistics hubs, uh, transportation nodes, including bridges and barges, uh, on command and control nodes, um, as well as, you know, frontline uh, defensive positions, you know, primary and secondary positions. They coordinated that with a strategic influence campaign, clearly, um, you know, about mobilised soldiers coming to Ukraine to die, uh, which wasn't just an influence campaign. It's, it's been the reality throughout the last month or so. And then um, they've married that with close combat, you know, and uh, fighting has been fair, was fairly hard, particularly in the eastern and northern parts of Kherson. But what that did is created growing pressure on the Russian force um, but growing pressure on its support elements as well, um, both physical and, and, and psychological. And really the Russians were at a point where they had to make a decision between two outcomes, and there were only two outcomes for them. Firstly, uh, withdrawing what forces they could, particularly their better forces, um, accepting they might have to sacrifice mobilised soldiers as, as rearguard um, uh, forces, or they would potentially lose through the destruction or surrender those forces. Um, they weren't two great options, but the least worst one was the withdrawal, and that's what they conducted. Now, my view is that they conducted the withdrawal uh, better than what happened up around Kherson. Clearly, I think they used the evacuation of civilians, which the Russians announced as cover for evacuating a lot of the Russian soldiers as well. So by the time we saw the announcement uh, by Zorobgin, um, around about this, um, he'd already been shaping the information space for some time, and I think he'd already uh, evacuated a large part of the force. So, you know, I, I don't have any admiration for the Russian army uh, to any degree whatsoever. However, they did conduct this withdrawal 
uh, in reasonably good shape. Uh, they've been able to preserve combat forces, which they can uh, then reinforce and redeploy elsewhere. And it will be very interesting to see where those forces go. Clearly, a lot are going to the east, but wherever they go, it will provide very good insights into Sorovkin's winter and 2023 priorities. So it seems that you tend to agree with what people have now deduced in recent days, that the change in command has led to a change in uh, execution capacity of what seems to be a complicated, but still, if you think about it, classical uh, military maneuver, a fighting withdrawal, uh, even undercover. This is what they should, as a professional army, if they were one, they should be able to conduct. This time, they actually managed to do so. Yeah, I mean, withdrawal is always difficult, um, particularly if you have an enemy that's uh, following up quickly on you. I think there was um, probably some effective deception by the Russians throughout. There was also, I think, better strategic shaping of the Russian domestic audience uh, before and during um, the withdrawal. Didn't see that in Kharkiv clearly, and that caused Putin a lot of problems. So I think at both the political level and the operational level, uh, the Russians demonstrated a, a degree of competence this time. Now, we can take from that a few things, but I, I think a really important thing is that having a single unified commander who I think is talking direct to Putin and clearly has the ear of Putin because this, this withdrawal wouldn't have happened without the endorsement of Putin, um, is paying off for the Russians. And I think Srovkin is someone the Ukrainians are going to have to watch. He is different to his predecessors. I mean, clearly he's brutal. He spent time in prison. You know, he did some awful things in Syria. His soldiers have already done awful things in southern Ukraine. Uh, so this is by no means meant to say that I admire the man. But he is demonstrating a level of competence that the Ukrainians are going to have to watch. It's interesting. Uh, this is a, one of these discussions which we had uh, with your input in recent weeks uh, when you were here before, and also uh, we had uh, the same kind of, um, I'd say, concern note from Pekka Tovari. We had heard statements to that effect from uh, General Ben Hodges as well. Everybody seemed to have been in agreement that a change to a different commander, and maybe such commander or this one specifically, may well lead to the Russians learning, respectively, actually reverting back to doctrine. Mm. And one has to take this into account, as opposed to uh, the um, other statements which we've had all the time, that they were so um, sodding stupid. Well, mm. that stupidity uh, it may have vanished now, at least to an extent, on the command level. Um, and with that in mind, Ukraine has to prepare for a different enemy now, right? Yeah. I mean, stupidity never disappears from military organisations. I mean, um, there's there's the old saying that those who've been in the army don't enjoy circuses. Um, and having spent 35 years in, in the army, and it's an institution I do, I do adore, but just the nature of what we do, particularly when you're in contact with an enemy, sometimes leads to stupid decisions. Um, and war is not about making stupid things disappear. It's just about doing less stupid things than your adversary. Um, so, you know, I've never thought the Russian military institution is totally stupid. I think they're unethical, 
and, and professionally corrupt, but they're not stupid. They have demonstrated the capacity to learn throughout this war, just not at the same pace as Ukrainians. I think Sorobkin might change that. And I think it's going to, we're really going to have to watch this guy. We're going to have to watch the kind of command methods he uses. We're going to have to watch the kind of subordinate commanders he appoints. And we're going to have to watch how he adapts um, tactics, how he adapts organisations and, and how he adapts um, the integration of combat with strike and strategic information operations. Do you think that he could um, overcompensate for the uh, evident degradation of the logistics capacity of the Russians and their uh, supply capacity? Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt he is going to have to undertake uh, some kind of consolidation, uh, firstly, of combat units. Um, so he has effective uh, combat units, but also an effective um, operational reserve, which he, he will really need. Um, he will need to consolidate logistics. And when I say consolidate, he needs to make it more effective, but he needs to make it more resilient and survivable. Um, and I think uh, we've already seen some adaptations of the Russians around dispersal and these kind of things. But, you know, that this will demand a whole range of things that the Russians traditionally don't do, you know, more truck-bound logistics, less train-bound logistics, things like this. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, it, it will really bear watching. I think Sorovkin will change how the Russian invasion force thinks, how it fights and how it adapts itself and how it learns um, over, you know, the next few months. So doesn't this also mean, I'm, I'm just suggesting, but doesn't it also mean that the Ukrainian armed force need to keep their momentum as they have it? continue to be as methodic and well-planned, remain careful, as evidently uh, uh, General Zeluzhny has stated that he tends to be, but at the same time, utilize the momentum they have now and push hard. How do you see their approach in winter? Everybody is now looking at this. I think you, as well as Ben Hodges, have been on record saying that the Ukrainians are better prepared for the winter, that they can utilize it, but the ground is hard as soon as it is hard, mm. and that they can um, make advances and one should not be too afraid of such advances during winter time because the Russian logistics may not support uh, anything else but a deeper defense and therefore more retreats or withdrawals. Mm. How do you see that? Yeah, I mean, the first, first myth that I keep seeing perpetuated um, you know, is that things are going to stop in winter. And I've seen this from a bunch of commentators, generally from cubicle-bound commentators in national capitals with minimal military experience. <laughs> I mean, it's just ludicrous. <laughs> you know, when you just, like, read a book, um, there is so much military history that involves fighting through winters. I mean, even just in the last 100 years, you can look everywhere from the Siachen Glacier in the north of India Battle of the Bulge, I mean, the Winter War, the continuation war after that. I mean, people fight through winter, particularly when they know what winter is. I mean, remember, the Russian invasion started in winter. So this war isn't going to stop. There may be uh, variations. There may be areas where it has to slow down, like you said, until the ground freezes, you know, uh, life becomes difficult. 
But even, you know, uh, during the rains, during the, which uh, this time of year in, in Ukraine, um, it doesn't stop things. It just changes how you have to think about operations, supporting operations, camouflage, deception, operational security. Um, when it comes to who's best prepared for the war, you know, it's very hard to tell. It's hard to peer into Ukrainian and um, Russian logistics to any great degree. And I don't know anyone has a, a very accurate view of things like cold winter clothing, um, you know, winter prep for um, uh, vehicles. I mean, clearly there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done there. Um, communications change as well because of different weather and atmospherics. So it's very hard to see just how well prepared both sides are. But my sense would be, given the Ukrainian record so far, they are a more adaptive organisation. They have better bottom-up ability to uh, evolve how they think and do business for different circumstances, including winter. So I think they might just be ahead of the Russians. But, um, you know, the Russians, like I said, aren't stupid and, and they could surprise us. Yeah, never underestimate the enemy surprising you and coming out of left field, quite literally. Now, there's two things where I would like to, if you allow me, yeah. go a little bit more granular, because I know that many of our uh, co-moderators, and uh, you can see it already on the panel, they do have questions in that regard as well. Right. Maybe whilst we were at Hassan before, why don't we just briefly stay there and then cross over to the northeast, and then I'll have a few more questions. Mm -hmm. But uh, very briefly, Hassan. The Russians have uh, withdrawn, retreated, if you want to say it this way. Large columns were seen going down south from Novakahovka. Mm -hmm. Many of them actually seem to have gone further east, as you indicated. But uh, the main force has withdrawn towards an area which is slightly north of Henichesk, uh, slightly north of uh, Chablinka to an extent, and definitely northwest of Amiansk. That looks like some kind of a um, say, widely dispersed and spread out defensive position to safeguard access towards Crimea. Mm -hmm. Our colleague Yehuda had said that he believes that the Russians have no logistical capacity and no defense capacity against the advancing Ukrainians with high Mars and long-range artillery and better ammunition to defend the corridor from there all the way to the east of Melitopol and towards Mariupol. Would you agree with that? And how would you see that unfold in the south? Yeah, I mean, it was always going to be interesting to watch where they sent these forces and and provide prior, you know insights into Sorovkin's priorities for next year. Um, the Russians are clearly now worried about Crimea. I think you now a few months ago they may not have been, but given both the air and maritime attacks that we've seen, um, not just at Sevastopol and on air bases, but you know uh, the attack on the the bridge to Crimea. I think they are now concerned, and not only do they have to do something to defend it, but they've got to be doing something where they're seen to be defending it. So there's both a military and political imperative for the Russians uh, to do something here. And because of that, that means combat forces that they may have wanted to use in Zaporizhia or in the rest of Kherson uh, may not be as dense as they would like. Um, that will create opportunities for the Ukrainians. Now, there's no going into Crimea without securing Zaporizhia and Kherson, in my view. I mean, you can't take Crimea with some airborne or amphibious operation. The Ukrainians don't have the capacity and they're extraordinarily vulnerable. 
um, and, and frankly, very difficult to support without ground lines of communication. As you know, you know the terrain. There's only two real ground axes of advance uh, into Crimea. The Ukrainians will have to own at least one of those, if not two. So, you know, there's a whole range of sequential things that would need to happen for them to go into Crimea. And you know, the rest of Kherson and Zaporizhia are really important parts of shaping as well as uh, preliminary operations to allow the Ukrainians to threaten or even go into Crimea. So, but as to the corridor to the east of this, mm. so if we move from from uh, Amiansk onwards to the east towards Melitopol, mm. um, do you think that it's worthwhile for the Ukrainians to try uh, after they are now actually making movements across Novokovka and the likes um, to pierce there and uh, have this complemented by a move down from Saporizhia onwards? passing by Militopol to Berdyansk, is that what we are supposed to expect? Or is yeah. it just armchair generaling? I'm sorry. Well, we're all armchair generals now, right? Um, and well, uh, that, that doesn't hurt. But, um, you know, I think Militopol is a very attractive operational level target. I mean, it is clearly a significant transport hub. It is clearly an important uh, administrative uh, hub for governance and the Russian presence uh, in the South. Um, and it's clearly an important political objective for both the Russians and, and the Ukrainians. Um, but it's also a pretty obvious target. That doesn't mean it mean it's less important, but it is kind of an obvious axis. And, you know, it would not surprise me if the Ukrainians were to do something in moving towards Melitopol. If... But it would be very difficult because if you, you know, depending on where they come from, if you come from the north, you've got to, you're going to have Russian forces to your east and west as you advance south. And that's very difficult to have flank security and to hold open the shoulders of that axis. Um, as we've seen so far, um, the Ukrainians don't prefer to penetrate like that, but, you know, kind of chip away at the edges so they don't have big flank security concerns. So, Whilst Militopol would be a very attractive target uh, for all the reasons uh, you and I have laid out, I think it would also be a very difficult one without the the uh, forces to conduct the break-in, conduct exploitation, but also uh, undertake the flank security missions that would be required for such a penetration uh, deep uh, into uh, Russian-occupied Ukraine. We have the, the topic here that... Um, Everybody is looking at Tokmak for various reasons, vested in history, previous wars, Tokmak's location, and the possibility that Ukraine could bypass Melitopol, mm. just like they didn't immediately go into um, Kherson, mm. but rather bypass it uh, and force it uh, by means of going down to Berdyansk, force it to be cut off from supplies. So at some point in time, with partisans quite active in Melitopol and the surroundings, mm -hmm. that the city might be untenable for a urban defense by the Russians. Is that something sensible? Would you see this as a, uh, a viable option? Oh, I think that's, uh, you know, that is a, a viable course of action. Um, you know, there is a range of different objectives that we can imagine Ukrainians might aim for. And, you know, they, they have really um, 
been about the indirect approach in this war. You know, they only take the Russians head on in large scale close combat when they've set the conditions for that to occur. Um, so, you know, I think we'll see a lot more shaping activities in the coming weeks. I mean, it's almost two weeks since um, the withdrawal in Kherson occurred. Um, there will be some Ukrainian brigades that were probably pulled out straight away for rest reinforcement, and they could well be ready for um, uh, offensive operations in the coming weeks. I mean, you know, once you've got a good combat unit, you don't need long rests to do this. You know, a couple of weeks um, to refit, uh, to rest, to reinforce, and then you can be back in it because when you have momentum and you have initiative, you really want to keep it going. Um, so, you know, I could imagine a few different axes uh, where the Ukrainians might want to penetrate into the south, um, but there'll be a lot of shaping and there'll be a lot of enabling activities before then, and they'll only go into that close combat fight when they believe the conditions are just right for them to do that. One follow-up to this. As we now see, uh, today was the first day, and I, I, you may have seen the video of Dnipro, and if you haven't, we'll post it out again. But in Dnipro this morning, when a bus driver turned uh, sort of a left onto an avenue, then in the very, very, uh, in the distance, but not too far away, an apartment building was hit. Mm. And next to the apartment building was yet another gas uh, node. Mm. Evidently, the Russians are now targeting um, the gas infrastructure to make Ukraine even colder for civilians. Mm. If there's one city which is already exceptionally cold and unsupported, it is Mariupol. Yep. And in Mariupol, currently, the estimates range because nobody really knows, albeit that Ukraine seems to have better information. In Mariupol, we are supposed to expect at least another 60,000 civilians who can neither really flee, nor can they be supplied, nor do the Russians seemingly want to supply them. Yeah. They'd rather starve them out. Is this a lure? Is this a trap? Or is it just uh, their sadism? Sorry, if I may call it this way. I, I don't know what else to find as a word. Or is it just their desire to genocide the Ukrainians? And how should Ukraine deal with this tragedy? Well, you know, um, I think it's clear now that uh, Ukrainian resources are stretched and it's going to lead, need a lot more support uh, from the West beyond just military support. I mean, it's been getting a lot of economic assistance. I mean, you need money to fight a war, but they're going to need a lot more assistance to repair um, their civil infrastructure. I mean, clearly this will be a high priority for the government in the lead up to winter. Um, and, you know, the, this deliberate Russian targeting has no military utility. I mean, uh, you know, we need to be very clear on this. There is no military utility in having civilians freeze to death. It's all about psychological, it's about terror. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I, I really do think now the UN is going to have to have a serious look at um, designating Russia as a terrorist state. I mean, if this was a non-state entity doing this, there would be an instant designation of them as a terrorist state. I mean, there, there would be no discussion about it, just one or two of these incidents. We've seen hundreds of them now from Russia. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, that would be a very important marker uh, internationally because what it also does when when something's designated as a terrorist state, it kicks into play a whole lot of other legislative requirements from different countries 
including even more severe sanctions and uh, other punitive measures against Russia. Um, uh, you know, they've lost the right to be considered as a um, a member of the a member in good standing of the international community, and um, I, I think there's going to have to be a whole lot more targeting of the Russian politics um, and the leadership, because clearly these things that are happening are driven by Putin, and as long as Putin's there, um, you know, Russia's behaviour is just not going to change. Yeah, you made the case earlier today, I saw briefly in, uh, in the run-up to um, our segment here, that it has become clear that Putin and his circle will have to go, and it becomes actually a self-fulfilling prophecy that he has to, or that the government has to change before Russia can be an acceptable counterpart. Now, having said this, we also hear today that Russian Chemobiks are actually now being taken off the front line near Svatova, where mm -hmm. they were relinquished without much, if anything, to fight with, yep. only as essentially yeah, cannon fodder meat. Yep. Uh, and uh, now they're being brought back to Russia to be imprisoned and starved to death <laughs> until they finally were, were to be willing to go back. I mean, I mean, it's it's it is it's like a mad person running the show. It's like we'll send you there without any training, no leadership, no equipment, and when you run away, we'll put you in prison. Um, like if you can imagine being in that position yourself um, and being their family members. Not that I have any sympathy for a Russian soldier that steps on the Ukrainian soil, but if you imagine yourself in that position, um, you, you'd think you'd stepped into a madhouse. Now, what does that mean for the Northeast? If I'm, before we go to our colleagues, just very briefly, how do you see this? At the moment, they are still holding. Matova hasn't fallen, but the Ukrainians have been hitting it hard, surroundings as well. The Ukrainians seem to have made some very, very interesting moves towards the north, towards Troitska, and uh, they have um, pushed onwards from Kremina. It looks as if they're attriting the Russians, despite the fact that these are throwing exactly those troops there. How do you see the, the uh, north? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the Ukrainian offensive will, I think, peter out uh, at some point. I mean, they've been at it for some time now, and even the best forces at some point uh, reach the end of their tether when it comes to offensives. Now, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if the, if, you know, the attacks we're seeing by the Ukrainians in multiple locations in the northeast at the moment, and they are attacking on multiple locations, and we are seeing, you know, concentrations of Ukrainian armour. You know, they might be preparing and shaping for one last significant push before that force becomes logistically and physically um, exhausted. So, you know, I think we're going to continue to see uh, a fair bit of activity there over the coming week, but, you know, it would not surprise me in a week or two that we see the Ukrainians um, go into some kind of lower tempo just because the forces that have been involved are exhausted. All right. Thank you for that. If you don't mind, uh, I would hand over to my friend and colleague, Colby, and then we'll go to Hans. Colby. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Colby. Thank you, uh, General Warren, for joining us again. Uh, I want to go back to um, to winter again. Um, anybody who's read uh, anything about the Eastern Front during World War II would know that the period when uh, combat operations are most adversely affected is during the spring and the autumn. 
and yet we have all the all these different members of the the commentariat who are making the suggestion that during winter we're going to see this major slowdown in mm. operations. Do you, would you attribute that to a lack of historical knowledge about the circumstances of, of fighting in the region, or do you think that there's something a little bit more nefarious here with trying to craft this narrative that Ukraine needs to come to the bargaining table because we're going to slow down over winter and it's going to become a stalemate? Uh, I think it's a bit of both, mate. I mean, with the former, I think, you know, a lot of commentators uh, comment on many, many, many issues and are about, a, you know, a centimetre deep on most of them and lack a historical sensitivity when it comes in particular to military operations. So I think that's partly the reason. Um, but the second one, you know, I think is interesting. I think there is a strand out there in several countries where people think this is now the time for negotiations, including General Milley in the United States, which just astounds me. Um, I don't understand their rationale um, other than appeasing Russia uh, because negotiating now only benefits Russia. You know, why would we give Russia um, a strong hand? Why would we allow them to benefit from negotiations at the moment? And ultimately, when it comes to negotiations, I mean, what's on the table? You know, that's the follow-on question. Okay, what are they going to negotiate about? Zelensky's made it very clear the 10 conditions for war termination. He's said what's on the table. Putin has made it very clear that he is not negotiating for the provinces. So I actually don't know what they would be negotiating over other than a ceasefire, which once again would only benefit Russia. But back to the bigger question, you know, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I think a lot of commentators out there are good at commentating but don't have deep knowledge in the topics they're commentating about. I certainly see that in my country. Um, but I think the second point you make is uh, equally important. There are people out there who, who think winter's the right time for negotiations. Uh, thank you very can, much. I add, can I add one thing? All these questions are very good. And, and I like this point. This item of negotiations, uh, General Milley, actually, in the press conference, if you listen carefully, I'm sure you worked on this anyway, but if everybody listens carefully to how he reverted back to what was essentially a, a slightly admonishing question from the, uh, the journalist pool, how he clarified that whilst he agrees that the Ukrainians are doing fine and that they are making headway and that they can fight in winter, still as off-tempo uh, reduces, that there, he would see it as a political opportunity, not a military item. And he differentiated this very clearly. And the political opportunity to work from a position of more strength now than a few months ago, that is something which uh, also uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin highlighted. So I think there is significantly less discord than what we may have feared, were concerned about, read into it. And um, uh, our friendly journalists may have um, uh, castigated him for, or how do you see it? Yeah, I, it's a bit hard to know. Um, you know, Millie should be smart enough in that position not to say things that are going to put him at odds with the administration he serves. Um, so if he's been misinterpreted by journalists, he's clearly said things that are either confusing 
or can be clearly read as meaning something other than what he might have intended. Um, you know, and, and once again, Milley is providing another great study of tensions in civil-military relations because what he was saying was at odds with what Biden's been saying. And, you know, at some point you've got to think how long is Milley's position tenable while he keeps doing these things? Um, so, you know, the problem is not with journalists. Um, you know, as we say, when you're communicating, it's not communicate to make sure you're understood. It's communicate also to make sure you can't be misunderstood. And for someone in his position, with the amount of staff support he has in public affairs, strategic communications, legislative affairs, congressional liaison, I mean, this is a really important part of his job. And he's messed it up a few times. And you've got to go, what's going on here? Okay, I will ask that question then. <laughs> <laughs> How do you like I mean, I, I don't know what's going on with, with that relationship. I, ju I just, <laughs> I find it very interesting. I, I think there's a civil military issue uh, yeah. between the Pentagon and the White House on, on Ukraine. Okay, thank you for that. But then I don't have to ask the question. If you allow me, I, I would like to go to our colleague and friend, uh, Craig, and then to Ben, Erland and Charles. Let's go to Craig first. Craig, you had your hand up for long. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, General Ryan, as always, thank you for your time uh, that you spend with no us. No problem. It's always great. Always greatly appreciated. Um, I think one of the things that's been kind of rattling around in my brain uh, these past couple of weeks is the ability for the Ukrainian army to adapt given different conditions. Um, and how that's, and, and, and not so much from a cultural perspective, but from an actual perspective, as somebody who has, to borrow the phrase, worn a star or two, right? How do you teach that? How do you preach that to your junior officers and to others so they understand your ability to say, you know what, in Kherson we did this, but in Kharkiv we're going to do that. And given different circumstances, we're going to do different things. Mm -hmm. That's not just a simple command. That's a part of a culture, right? But more importantly, how do you, I, don't, I hesitate to use the word train, right? But how do you drill that into your unit? So what I'm getting at is, if Ukraine was to do one of those maneuvers you just described, which is heading towards the lead pole to the north, right? Then given the amount of troops that you have, say 30 to 40,000, that's a large geographical area, given what we just saw in Kherson in relation to, it's, it's not as comparable. And so you're going to be a lot more spread out, which means you're going to have a lot more diffusion of decision-making, right, to be had. Can you kind of speak to how you institutionalize that as a part of a raw conscript who just got done with training in the UK coming into mm. a unit like this. Yeah, hey, it's uh, it's easier said than done. Uh, and as you identify, this is a cultural uh, issue. Uh, but there are some things that you can do in training to provide the foundation for a learning organisation for an adaptive stance in institutions. The first one, a really important one, and very basic, is after action reviews. When you finish a mission, do a quick hot wash and after action review, record your observations and pass them up, pass them laterally. I mean, so important that, be, you know, that becomes uh, about spreading what's successful, what's not successful in, in an organisation. Um, the second part of it is command and leadership selection. Um, you need to select people who are open to different ideas, who um don't need to dominate conversations and who are able to nurture an environment where different ideas are welcome, tested, 
Uh, and if they work, you know, credit is given where it should be and the ideas are spread. And if it doesn't work, the commander accepts the blame and moves on with the next thing. Um, so it's a mix of training and culture. And you need to do that at, at each level. Uh, and then you have, you know, institutional mechanisms, uh, lessons, bulletins, rapid uh, absorption of, of tactical lessons into the schoolhouse and into PME systems. So there's, there's a whole range of things you need to be in an adaptive army. Uh, and we looked at a lot of this about a decade ago in our army. Did some of it, didn't do all of it. Um, how, do you, how do you... How do you I was just going to say... I was I just going to say a great, great study of this is Amy Fox Godden's book, Learning to Fight, published by Cambridge uh, University uh, about three, four years ago. It won a lot of awards, but it is a fabulous examination of how the British Army adapted and learnt from 1914 to 1918 and how it had an institutional approach to learning and sharing lessons, not just in... Um, the Western theatre, but across all its theatres, um, you know, from the Middle East uh, to, you know, Western theatre and, and other places that the British Army was involved. Um, it's extraordinarily complex, but it can be done if you really focus on it. No, and I was just going to say, if I could just Axel very briefly follow up on that, and then uh, I'll gladly step down. Um, how do you institutionalise creativity? right? How do you institutionalize adaptivity, right? You have to make yeah. it a part of your DNA, right? So it's like telling somebody uh, how to walk. Uh, you can't describe it. They just kind of have to feel it, feel their way through, so to speak. Um, and it's an interesting psychological uh, perspective as well when it comes to the individual officer or general, you might say. But my second question to you would be ammunition. Um, we have seen Ukraine burn through a lot of 105 versus 155 uh, shells recently. Um, you actually did a thread on industrial production vis-a-vis -vis the West and Russia. Um, and I had commented on that. And I guess my question to you is, why do you think that we're seeing these these 105s be integrated into these brigades? And you see so much fire. I mean, some of the, this is a lot of fire, sir. I mean, it's not a, a slacking by any means. Um, and so could you kind of speak to how you take these smaller guns and put them into maybe smaller brigade-like units to maybe not depend so much on M777 fire. Um, can, can you kind of talk about that, that integration tool or no? No, I mean, we're going to have to do some of that. I mean, I'm not a fan of towed artillery anymore. I actually don't think it's survivable on the modern battlefield uh, just because it's too slow to, to move. But out of necessity, I think we're going to have to uh, integrate 105s uh, at A level. I mean, you know, we still have mortars, you know, mortar platoons and battalions and, and sections in companies in some ar armies. Uh, that works at certain levels. And we're just going to have to find a place for a towed 105 system, noting its, you know, weaknesses in, in, in time to move uh, and range and survivability. Um, but it probably does have a place. I just don't not quite sure where it is at the moment. It's it's probably below brigade. It's certainly not a, a brigade or above capability more just because of range and survivability. But I think out of necessity, we, we're probably going to have to use some of these guns. Do you mind if I hand it to CJ? Because he obviously, whilst he's longing for an RCH 155 from Germany, he probably mm -hmm. will have to wait for that a little. CJ, what do you say? Toad artillery? 
No, I, well, sir, it's, my whole life has been total artillery, but I'm, I'm willing to take, <laughs> take the hit. I, I wonder um, if I may use this opportunity to ask you a brief question about sort of all the war fighting functions. What is it mm, sure. sort of um, told you or showed you how NATO armies should reorganization their command support relationships? Yeah, you kind of mm. mentioned, you know, where fire should be, where engineering should be. What do you think that the most valuable lessons are for, for some changes that might have to be made moving forward? Um, you know, beyond those, I think ground-based air defense has proved to be extraordinarily effective. Um, and I use that in the broader sense, you know, not just against enemy aircraft, but against missiles, against drones and those kind of things. I think there's a, a thickening of ground-based air defense required in NATO organizations. I don't think we've we generally haven't had as dense a ground-based air defence environment as, say, the uh, Warsaw Pact or the Russians have, but we need to thicken it, uh, particularly with counter-drone capabilities. Uh, so I think that'll that'll be important. I think um, the use of tanks and IFVs in particular has been reinforced in this war. They are still a very important tool of warfare. Um, we just need to remember all the lessons we learned from the Israelis and Arabs in 1973 about how do you prevent them being attacked by dismounted um, anti-tank teams, right? Um, we know this. We know how to do that. But beyond that, I think, uh, with AFEs, we just need to think through, um, you know, survivability, uh, but also how do we team crewed AFEs with uncrewed AFEs? Um, and what is the ratio of each? Uh, it's it's an area we haven't seen anything of in this war. It really surprised me. Uh, clearly, the Russian uncrewed ground combat vehicles are nowhere near as mature or capable as they've been telling everyone at defence expos for the last 10 years. We just haven't seen them. I think the importance of close combat has also been reinforced, even though you know we've seen a lot of long-range strike and those kind of things. At the end of the day, you still have to close with the enemy and kill them. Uh, and you do that with infantry, and you do it with armour. Uh, and you need well-trained and well-led uh, infantry and armour forces supported by all the other arms and services and, you know, to enable them to shape, to influence, all that stuff um, in a modern military organisation. Um, we are not going to win wars uh, through long-range strike or lots of maritime vessels. You know, people live on the land and governments live on the land. You have to win on the land. So, you know, I think some of these timeless lessons have been reinforced. Uh, and the final one, I think it's a really obvious one, but the importance of developing good leaders. You know, leadership development, leadership selection at every single level is vital. And um, we've seen, you know, the Ukrainians have got it right in a lot of instances. I'm sure there's lots of cases they didn't. But once again, this is an asymmetry between them and the Russians, where the Ukrainians have got it more right than the Russians have. And that's all you need to do in war. So, I mean, these are some of the some of the areas of combat capability we need to think about. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to be evolutionary. I don't see anything revolutionary out of this war. Um, and I guess... If I could just add one more thing onto leadership, the role of citizen journalists, influencers, battle mappers um, in this war has really stood out as something quite innovative and something that government and military intelligence organisations cannot afford to ignore. 
and we'll have to partner with in future. Um, you know, if a 15-year-old kid can stand by the road with an app and with a couple of taps uh, send data to a central fusion area about the movement of a Russian convoy or a couple of Russian missiles flying overhead, um, these become important parts of our meshed sensor network. Um, so I think this is probably one of the really transformative aspects of the war I've seen, one, one of the few, but it is quite transformative. And we're really going to have to think more carefully um, and more cleverly about the integration of civilian and military sensors, analytical capability and uh, information dissemination in warfare. No, thank you so much, sir. I'll, I'll stand by because I, I do want to follow up, but I'd love to hear what, what others have to say first. No worries. Thanks. Okay. Uh, it was Ben Earl and then Charles. Thank you, Colby. Um, thank you, General. Um, I've got a very quick question, and I sure. will resist the um, temptation of asking you about your next book and uh, science fiction. Yeah. Uh, the, so the question I have for you is regarding the, the retreat uh, of the Russians in Kherson. Um, that's the second time, at least, that... Um, the Russian army is able to pull a successful retreat. And we were told that it was extremely difficult to retreat while engaged. And I was wondering to what extent um, people like me were misunderstanding the, the, the way the war is fought on the ground, uh, because I tend to imagine uh, World War I trenches. But is it a fact that uh, actually due to the lack of personnel, uh, there is not the... Um, units are never really truly uh, engaged for a very long time. Uh, what what's the tactical situation that it that may explain the success of the Russian retreat? Yeah, I mean, if you have a look at how um, the defence is conducted by modern military organisations, including Russian doctrine, I mean, it's it's not like it's one long line of soldiers in a trench <laughs> defending. I mean, you have successive defensive lines which have increasingly dense concentrations of combat and support troops, you know, over dozens if not hundreds of kilometres. So the reality is at any given time only a very, very, very small proportion of your force is actually engaged with the enemy. When I say engaged, it doesn't mean fighting. It might just be in within sight or within sensor range and those kind of things. So the reality is uh, a large proportion of your force is generally out of contact anyway, and that includes your reserves. So if you are clever, if you are able to deceive the enemy about uh, where you are, what your main effort is, um, and cover it with something like a civilian evacuation, you know, these kind of things become simpler. Not simple, because they're always difficult, there's always frictions and those kind of things but they do become uh, more manageable to undertake. And clearly, you know, the forward defensive locations, I think the Russians have put Mobix in there just to have a presence, not because they're capable, but just to say we're still defending these areas. There's still things you can detect on your sensors. We haven't changed. Um, so, you know, I, I, these things are difficult, particularly when you have a fairly dense static defensive uh, regime like the, the Russians had in Kherson. So the fact that they've been able to withdraw in good order indicates to me that they had that very deep defensive regime. 
and that, you know, frankly, the Russians have probably been thinking about this for a very long time and very gradually thinning out their troops in Kherson. It wasn't something they did over the course of a week. They've probably been thinning out troops over quite some time, including, you know, these deceptions about, oh, no, we're reinforcing. Well, they might have sent in, a, you know, 200 soldiers but taken out 300. Um, so, you know, it, it's all about creativity. It's all about uh, sequencing. It's all about deception and operational security to be able to do these things in any, with any sense of success. All righty. If you don't mind, I would move on to Charles because he had his hand up also for long, and then we go to Ireland, and then back to the man who needs upgrading of his toys from M triple sevens to something mobile, CJ. But uh, we go to Charles. Thanks, General. Uh, thanks, Axel. Um, I want to pick up on the topic of, of learning organization and leadership development and, and what you mentioned, sir, about Sorovkin. Um, in, in my three years in Iraq, I, I experienced a, a, a massive change in approach and, and strategy uh, to war fighting. Um, it, my question to you is then, even if Sorovkin has, a, a, we'll say, operationally, uh, good ideas. Um, what is his what is his ability to actually implement that kind of thing at the tactical level? Um, do you see the idea to learn moving down the organization to actually be effective? Um, in a good organization, you should be able to. There's no perfect system, um, and there's no perfect selection criteria and those kind of things, but. You know, you, you should be able to if um, you're an organisation that's mature, uh, that's cognizant of its history and cognizant of the reason for uh, why you do these things. Um, it's just never easy, that's all, because there's a whole lot of competing priorities. I'm, I'm wondering, sir, if you, if you think that the Russian military, with the, with the culture and with the leadership development, if, if they actually have the capacity to, um, to actually adapt even if the general staff may may be able to do that and and the leadership may be able to do that, but do you think it will will really make a difference? I think generally the biggest driver of change is failure. Um, if the Russian military is honest with itself um, now and after this war, they'll know that some things will have to change, particularly with leadership. Uh, whether they're actually capable of that, I don't know. It's very hard to tell. You know, culture is a really, really hard thing to get your hands around sometimes, particularly in a society uh, like what exists in Russia. Theoretically, are they capable of doing it? Absolutely. All humans are capable of adapting and changing and improving. Uh, but if the Russians can do it and over what time scale uh, remains to be seen. You know, we've seen the Russians adapt how they do business throughout their war as they keep failing. You know, they failed in the north, so they move main effort to Donetsk. They failed in the unified leadership, so they've appointed Sorovkin. Um, so they are capable of learning. They are capable of adapting. But these deeper institutional and cultural um, changes that are required to shift how you um, develop leaders, select leaders, um, incentivize leaders across the system. Well, that's a much bigger challenge than we've seen already in Ukraine. And whether they're capable of it or not, I, I don't have a good sense of that. And I think there would be very few people who would have a good sense of whether they're capable of it or not. Thanks a lot, sir. And now we go to Ireland. 
back to Norway. General, thank you very much for uh, your dedication of your time. Uh, it is very valuable for the space and for everyone listening. I want to ask you, um, given the conditions that the Russians somehow suddenly dedicated itself to train uh, their personnel, their officers, their NCO corps, uh, according to Western ideology, how many years would you give them before they can uh, somehow field a operational force with the same kind of philosophy, giving all the university, military universities, the NCO schools, etc., all those things, just the, just the humanistic uh, part of this, before you can actually field yeah. soldiers and NCOs officers uh, that can uh, perform uh, during the... Uh, yeah. So, so just in sum, how long would it take to turn the Russian military around into a fighting force? General, would you say it's been eight years for the Ukrainians to do it? Maybe the Russians with the same motivation could do it in 10? Yeah, I mean, they're clearly capable of it. Um, and when we say an effective fighting force and a Western fighting force, they're two different things. I don't think we're ever going to see the Russians be like us because they just aren't. They have a different worldview. They have a different culture. They are not ever, I think, going to transform into some version of a Western or NATO um, military institution that looks or thinks like us. So I, I think we should just take that off the table. That is just not Russia. And if for no other reason, they don't want to be like us. I mean, they just don't. So that isn't going to happen. However, that doesn't mean they can't build an effective military institution. Um, clearly, during the Cold War, there were large parts of Russia's and the Soviet Union's military that were extraordinarily effective. Um, I think people like Michael Kaufman and others have you know, made the point that the corruption that has crept in over the last 15 years or so, 20 years or so, is not something that was really present to the same degree during the Cold War, and it didn't have the same compromising effect on the professionalism of the Russian military in the Cold War. So that corruption is something they're going to have to uh, get rid of or minimise before they can uh, become a more effective and more professional force. Um, the second thing is around NCOs. Um, I know there's a lot of people who talk about the reason they're not successful is because they don't have NCOs. Well, they didn't have NCOs during the Second World War. They didn't have them during the Cold War. And they still seem to do okay. And I don't wonder whether this, once again, is a Western bias because we have NCOs, they work well for us. Why wouldn't they work well for the Russians? I think we need to be very careful about coming to that judgment because uh, the Russians look at it from a functional point of view, whereas we're looking at it from a rank point of view. If the functions are still undertaken that an NCO conducts in the West, but it's done by a junior officer or something else, well, I don't, I don't see an issue here. And indeed, the Russians made a deliberate decision as part of their reforms to not pursue a professional NCO force. It didn't just happen. They made a deliberate decision not to do this for a range of cultural and organisational reasons. I don't think the war is going to change that view. Uh, I think um, this is more about leadership, competence, um, integrated planning, combined arms, 
and training and executing operations in accordance with doctrine. I mean, these are the fundamental things they've got wrong in this war. I don't think the lack of an NCO Corps has been a significant determinant in the outcome of this war, even though we might like to think so. Can I just uh, follow up quickly? Sure. Yeah, so, uh, of course, given the circumstances, they have lost a significant amount of their officer corps, and I totally agree about your uh, evaluation of them not needing an NCO corps as long as they fulfill the role they are intended to do on the battlefield. Mm. But re-educating such a big part of your officer corps is a lengthy process. And it is. given all the corruption, and we, we have just have to assume that this has penetrated into the university levels in, in, in Russia. Uh, you need to restructure a lot of things. There, that's a long-term process, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yeah, like I said, this isn't something they're going to be able to fix now to change how they fight in Ukraine over the coming months. I mean, um, institutional, uh, organisational change is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, I've been part of a few in our army um, and our defence force, and they're very difficult even in peacetime, and you don't have people fighting anywhere. Um, you know, my personal experience is that one of the, you know, the biggest thing to change in a military organization is an idea. And whether that's a, a warfighting idea or an organizational idea or a doctrinal idea or a promotion idea, right? You know, incentives around promotion. These are very, very difficult things to change in military institutions because there are always good reasons not to change them. People can quote from history and war and those kind of things. So you're absolutely right. These, kinds of evolutions or transformations in institutions, not units, but in institutions, take years. It's not months, it's years to undertake. Um, and it will be an undertaking for the Russians, should they choose to do so uh, at some point after this war. But it's very hard to see them getting at it uh, at the same time as they're in Ukraine, just given the demands on the Russian military in particular the Russian army at the moment. They'll be so focused on Ukraine, they won't be able to think about institutional reform. All right, thank you. Let's go to CJ. Uh, CJ, go ahead. I'm going to have a question after you, guys. Yeah, sir. While we're talking about uh, large changes, I, I kind of want to go back to the, you know, NATO questions and, you know, NATO allies about institutional change. With mm. this in mind, we've had two conflicting stories this week. One of ammo stockpiles and, um, you know, production not meeting the demands of so many countries giving so much, you know, great aid to Ukraine. And we also have the stories of certain companies um, getting new funding and new production coming. So, you know, a, a lack of ammo and, and a lot of ammo, let's just say. In your mind, what should be the trigger for these countries or companies to start producing more in general? Because it seems like there is a mismatch here that, that could be remedied in the future. Um, I think the trigger was about six months ago, <laughs> and I don't know how we've missed it. Um, uh, you know, the best time to mobilise was yesterday. Um, second best time is today. Uh, there's lots of talk about it, but the reality is most nations have not. The only ones who have mobilised are the Russians and the Chinese. So uh, I can understand why they may not have done that, given the focus on uh, inflation, mortgage rates, cost of living, cost of energy, all these kind of things in a lot of our nations. Uh, but the reality is that Ukraine has given us whole lot of lessons about the consumption of munitions in modern warfare 
by the way, not a new lesson. Um, and the lack of adaption to that, uh, I think, has been quite interesting. I mean, a great example in Australia is we've just opened a big new ammunition factory that's producing 155 ammunition for the German army. Um, and uh, since that factory opened in February, there's been not a single order from the Australian Defence Force. You know, <laughs> And you've got to go, are we actually watching what's going on in Ukraine or are we sitting back um, cleaning up after floods and doing other um, less important things domestically? So, you know, I, I think all our nations have got a lot to learn and a lot to do when it comes to being able to develop, expand their defence industrial base and produce the quantities of munitions that are actually going to be required for um, what's coming next. And remember, you don't just hold war stocks to use in war. You hold them as a deterrent, right? They should be part of your conventional deterrent regime that says, okay, we have deeper stocks of stuff if you do want to fight. Um, and I think that's a really important asymmetry to be able to develop with potential adversaries. Is there a follow-up there, CJ? No, that's that's great. Thank you, sir. An interesting question about this fourth generation and whole culture there, sir. Um, with all of the new, I, I wouldn't say new use, but the extended or the increased use. Interesting, interesting right. question about fourth generation. So with the increased use, really effective use of force multipliers, these drones, even, even certain artillery to an extent, um, don't you think that'll force, I mean, you might say the Russian system worked in World War II because they had that mass and the critical mass, right? That just so much of so many. Um, and they and they might have thought, well, that's victory, so we don't need to change the system, even though you had the Americans, you know, underwriting a lot of their war effort, materially at least. Um, do you think that the the the, the presence of like force, cheap force multipliers, will change not just the Russian force postures and the force generation, or just their own military strategy, if not ours? Are we talking about uncrewed systems specifically? Yeah, specifically. Yeah, let's wait. UAVs, uncrewed systems for sure, and as they get cheaper and yeah. cheaper, drones. Yeah, no, I, I think so. Um, and I don't think there's a definitive answer yet, mainly because a lot of these systems aren't cheap. You know, um, The cheap ones come from small, medium enterprises who are often locked out of defence contracts because they can't afford to bid. And therefore, a lot of the contracts for uncrewed systems go to the very big multinationals who only offer big, expensive, extraordinarily expensive, exquisite systems. So I think the first thing we need to change is defence procurement in a lot of countries so we lower the barrier to entry to small, really innovative companies that are developing both uh, uncrewed systems across the domains but also counter-autonomy systems. Um, so there's the procurement side of it. The second piece is um, the requirement side. I mean, what are the requirements that different military institutions are developing for uncrewed systems at the moment? I think largely most militaries are still in the trials phase. That's not a bad thing. Um, but often they're just trialling and saying, what can they do, uh, rather than this is what we need them to do. Um, so we'll need to evolve warfighting concepts to better incorporate uh, uncrewed systems. Because at the moment, most of our doctrine, uh, it really is around humans using machines in all the domains. A third element of this moving forward will be getting the the ratio of crude to uncrewed systems, right? I don't know what that is, and it's going to be evolution. It's not just going to be a big bang thing. We'll have to gradually evolve this. But, you know, my, my sense is there will be uh, a, a ratio of crude and uncrewed systems in the battle space. It won't be one or the other anymore. 
Um, and if you take all those together, you've then got to prepare the humans in that system. Um, now, I've had a lot to do with training education and PME across the Five Eyes in particular, and, you know, I've run armies training and defences joint PME. And I can say with my hand on my heart, there is no Western military institution that has a training and education system that is prepared for partnering with machines in the physical or cognitive spaces. No one. We are institutions that for thousands of years have used tools, whether those tools are a stick or a stealth fighter. Our training and education prepares humans to use them. But with the uh, capacity of some robotic systems and bespoke algorithms, um, we are moving into a space where you're actually seeing true teaming and partnering. That will change how we train, how we select, how we promote, how we educate our people at all levels. And that's an evolution that really has to begin now, and we're going to have to do it pretty quickly um, because it will also necessitate um, a higher technological literacy from our people than we currently possess. Um, so there's a whole range of challenges here. Now, I'm an optimist and I'm very positive about this, and there's clearly a, a parallel linked uh, ethical debate about what should we allow algorithms and, and machines to do on our behalf and, and how much intervention by humans. So, you know, I think there's a whole range of things for us to sort out um, and it's going to take time and it's going to be an evolutionary approach. It's not going to be a big bang, everything change overnight. But, we, you know, we've really got to invest more in this uh, and military institutions are going to have to give up some stuff to be able to do this. And I think there are some capabilities that may not be survivable uh, across the domains in the future. Um, you know, in the ground domain, I, I think attack helicopters and towed artillery and anything that's not on wheels or track is just not viable in modern warfare. And I think in, um, you know, in the maritime and air domains, there's a range of capabilities, including short-range fighters, that I just don't know are going to be viable. Uh, in 10 or 20 years. Uh, that's going to be very difficult culturally, particularly when most air forces are commanded by fighter pilots. Um, there's not a lot of diversity there, uh, particularly in air forces. So th there's a whole range of cultural issues that are coming up with uh, the conduct of crewed and uncrewed operations that um, we're still grappling with and we're going to have to grapple with over the coming years and decades. So then, then you would... Do you agree with the statement that as uh, as warfare modernizes, the um, the technical capabilities of even um, your infantry private will have to greatly increase? You're going to have them going to have foos in every section, no? Well, that, that technical literacy is partially coming with them anyway. I mean, the education system outside changes, um, and they are going to use more technologically sophisticated weapons. You know, just basically inf infantry individual weapon now if i have a look at the latest variant that we've just uh developed i mean it, it has sensors it has sights on it you know it even has uh, you know a digital backbone where you can choose an option where you can't pull the trigger unless it's actually going to hit the target i mean these are very different to the old 303s of 100 years ago um but the kids know how to use them because that's just the world they've been brought up in um but i also think there's an imperative for defence and industry to collaborate to ensure that our equipment, be it a rifle or an aircraft or a truck, um, has a shorter 
and simpler training liability. You know, if we have to mobilise the exquisite, long training and education regimes that Western militaries currently have will not work. They just won't. We won't have time and we won't have the capacity or throughput. So we're going to have to change our views of training, but we're going to have to change how we design human-machine interfaces so it doesn't take as long to prepare people to use or partner with equipment, um, and it's simpler and there's a lower lower bar for being able to do it. I mean, the exquisite testing just to be a pilot is amazing. I mean, I mean there's so many hoops they have to go through. I don't think that's going to be survivable in 10 or 20 years. And I think there's a range of different elements of the profession where we're just not going to have the time um, uh, and we're going to need more capacity uh, and we're going to have to change those kind of training regimes and human-machine interfaces. All right. Well, if, uh, if that's uh, if that's in, you have to run. We thank you very yeah. much for your time, sir. Uh, hey, no know. worries. It's always great to, to talk to you all. Uh, and CJ, sorry about towed artillery, mate. <laughs> Hopefully uh, next time we can uh, have some better news on that front. How about that, sir? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's agree on that. Thank you, sir. And, hey, uh, thank no you worries. All right. Okay, no worries. Yeah. Bye-bye, all. Bye-bye.